Greetings, traveler. Welcome aboard the crime machine. My name is Victoria, and I will be your pilot for today's mission. Hello, hello, hello. I'm back. Yas. Um, <laughs> I think that was the most obnoxious intro I've ever done. Hello! Hi everyone! I'm back from a not expected hiatus. Um, I think I've been gone for like three weeks. No, two weeks. Two weeks, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I had a lot going on last week. Um, I had a family emergency. My mom's fine. Uh, but yeah, just uh, a lot of things, and then, like, I had friends here from out of town, and I was driving all over the place, so needless to say, I'm still very tired. It's surprising how much socializing and driving and just being a human in public uh, can really take it out of a person who spends most of her time in her house reading and watching documentaries. Um, oh, speaking of documentaries... I watched two that, well, I've watched way more than two, but I've seen two recently and they were on the History Channel. Uh, one was about how certain foods got made, so like food companies, so how, like the origins of Wendy's, and uh, the one that I particularly enjoyed was uh, Orville Redenbacher Popcorn and Pop Secret, which are two brands of popcorn i think those are the two most prominent brands of popcorn that we have here in the u.s because i know there's some people who listen to this who do not live here would love to know what are y'all's like standard microwave popcorn brands because ours are orville redenbacher and pop secret and back in the day those two kind of came around uh, around the same time i think orville redenbacher was first if i'm remembering the documentary correctly but i have a horrible memory uh but they were like beefing bro they had beef and it's so funny to watch food companies try to outfood each other because y'all at the core of it y'all are making the same thing y'all are making popcorn all popcorn comes from the same thing it comes from a kernel of corn that you gotta pop uh so you're not doing it different y'all are literally just doing it with different logos and colors <laughs> um personally i prefer orville redenbacher um it just makes me feel fancier sorry i think i just hit the microphone with my hand didn't mean to do that um but yeah and then the other documentary i watched was called crazy rich ancestors and uh it basically talked about the ex like the amounts of money that royal people and famous people from uh the 19th century spent on just everything uh 19th and like 20th century kind of because they went back and forth but um <laughs> the one that struck me the most was Theodore Roosevelt spent so much money like too much money on parties he had 600 parties a year which there's not even 600 days in a year let's start there so you're having multiple parties a day. You'd have to. Or you just have to have a bunch in one day each day of the week to add up to 600 because there's 365 days in a year. But you're having 
double the amount of parties than there are days. So statistically, you're just going to have to have a, a shit ton of parties is what you're going to have to have. I'm not going to do the math. I was trying to do it in my head. Realized you can't do math. You barely passed it. Um, <laughs> uh, but I did. I have my diploma and I will never stop telling people I'm a high school graduate because it means the world to me. <laughs> uh, but yeah, and... Like, Queen Victoria also, another person, too many parties. She was having in the thousands of numbers of parties. That's ridiculous. Ma'am, what are you doing? Also, fun fact about Queen Victoria, she survived seven assassination attempts. I, you know, she's just out there doing her thing. I'm not a huge fan of her politics. Um, She, I, a lot of the movies kind of like to paint her as this real feminist-esque queen but when you actually read things about her you're like oh it so no actually so it's not that so the Emily Blunt movie lied to me that <laughs> I mean I'm sure some of it was accurate but yeah uh would I don't know uh, too much about her so I only know I know a lot about her fashion uh and that she almost died seven times uh but yeah I would love to do a deep dive on her, even though she's not a crime per se. Uh, would love to. Maybe I'll do that on the blog because things that don't fit on this podcast, I tend to stick on the blog because I have nowhere else to put it. <laughs> Ooh, in the podcast now, I'll remind you at the end too. Um, but the podcast has stickers now. You can. This is the first time I said it on air. The last time I said it. I said I was working on it. Now I'm saying they're out and you can buy them. And some people have. And it it made me so happy. I was like, oh my God. It it hits me like every day that I'm like, oh, I have a podcast with a catalog. Like you can just go on Spotify and look me up and I'm on there next to all the other podcasts. That just, the fact that I can stream my podcast on the same apps that some of my favorite podcasts are on it it just I can't my brain doesn't want to think about it too much because I'll stress myself out but I have stickers now uh each one is four dollars I have one of just the logo the new logo the one that is currently the logo <laughs> and uh, it just says current traveling podcast and then I have another one that says uh same shit different clothes which is if you're new to this podcast, that's something that I've said a couple times. I think I've said it like twice, but um, a friend of mine was like, please make that a sticker. And so I did it. And <laughs> shout out to Derek. He's been on this podcast. Check out episode two if you would like to hear uh, me and Derek talk about uh, a possible witch from the 1200s. But yeah, so that's a sticker. I'm hopefully going to make more in the future if you have any suggestions of stuff that you would like. Please let me know. I'm always open to ideas. And hopefully one day uh, when I, the funds happen, <laughs> um, uh, I can make t-shirts for you guys. Because I love to make all sorts of merch. Uh, it's just the logistics behind merch is a lot more difficult than I thought it was. Uh, but I'm figuring it out. I'm learning. And I'm proud of myself. But yeah. Stickers. You can get yours. They're each $4. Uh, you can pay through PayPal. That was the easiest way for me to set it up on my website. Uh, so, yeah, if you go to crimetraveling.com and there should be a thing on the top bar that says stickers and you click it and it'll take you and it'll walk you through everything. Uh, and each sticker or stickers, if you get multiple, comes with a handwritten note for me. 
uh, I have cute little stationery, and uh, I wrote you a personal note. Each person's note is different. I can confirm this. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's just been real fun. I love writing letters to people. I think it is a art that is sadly out of fashion now. So whenever I do receive a letter in the mail, I add it to my little wall. Uh, I got one recently. And it's my favorite thing ever. And it, yeah, I don't know. I, just, I think it's just the writer in me that's like, I just, I love writing people letters. I love getting letters. So if you would like a letter for me and a sticker where you can put wherever you want, they're three by three stickers in case you're wondering about the measurements. Three by three and they're a circle. Uh, you can put them on your laptop. That's what I do. I have one on my laptop of my own podcast. <laughs> um, you can put them on, a lot of people I see have those big old like, aluminum or they might be tin uh water bottles those big ones people put um stickers on their water bottles people put stickers on their cars I don't know how well mine will hold up on a car I cannot attest to that I've never tried it as a bumper sticker but I've heard people who have done that and they've put like a spray over it to keep it from like degrading in the weather um you can put them on a book you can put them on the front of your journal you can put it anywhere that your little sticker heart desires so yeah head on over i'll also put a link in the description of this episode if you would like to get your very own sticker all right so last time we talked what did we talk about we talked about bopper flop victorian inventions that one was actually really fun um the Victorian era, one of the reasons why I love it so much is because uh, the innovation was popping the hell off during that period. A lot of uh, practices and inventions and just things that are ingrained into everyday life now were created during the Victorian era because of the advancement in technology and um, just, it's just a fun time. But also a lot of stupid stuff was made because, <laughs> so, uh, which is what the last episode of this podcast was based on. So if you would like to check that out, uh, please head over to the last episode. But today we are talking about a spooky story. And that is all I'm going to tell you about it. Um, this is the most vague I think I've ever been about a case on this show. Uh, so let's jump right into it. Sit back, grab a snack, and let's travel back to Massachusetts in 1986. Our story takes place in Pepperell, Massachusetts, which if you are wondering geographically where in the state of Massachusetts that is, it's at the very top. Uh, currently, as of 2020, there is a little over 11,600 people that currently reside there. So it's not a super big town, but it's also not super tiny either. But uh, I can imagine that even less people lived there in the 80s. But it's a very quaint little um Kind of country, but not really. There's a lot of covered bridges. Those were the photos that I was mostly seeing. I also like to tell you guys, like, famous people that have come from there. There's a lot of, like, famous politicians and writers and professors that have come from there, but I don't think you would know 
literally any of these people. Uh, but there was a lady named Prudence Wright who was a British spy. <laughs> uh, so that's cool. I also just really like the name Prudence. There's a girl in the the new Sabrina show. That, well, it's not new, but the, the latest version of Sabrina the Teenage Witch that's on Netflix. Uh, her, I mean, I was about to call her a friend. I don't really think she's a friend. She's more just like a fellow witch that sometimes helps her if it benefits her. Um, her name is Prudence, and she's real badass. Uh, and she has a sword. The first season of that show, really good. Second season, tolerable. Every other season after that, I don't know what was going on. It hit a real Riverdale writing point after that, and I had to clock out. But the first season, highly recommend. Um, if you like original Sabrina, you'll hate this show. <laughs> like, just putting that out there. It is nothing like the original other than, like, the people's names are the same. But it is a totally different vibe. It is now a teen drama. It's, like... She, like, summons the devil and, like, she is the devil at one point. It's very, um, I like darker material, so I appreciate when people take things that are very light and comical and make it dark and scary. Like, when people take fairy tales and make them terrifying, even though fairy tales started out terrifying because grim fairy tales and then Disney took them and made them family friendly and people took them back and made them scary. I prefer the scary versions. So, I really enjoyed seasons one and two of Sabrina but you know a lot of people who like the original were like I am not a fan <laughs> and I can understand that and you are totally in your right to 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 keep that opinion so in Pepperell in 1986 uh we are now in the home of the Andrews family so there's three people that reside in this little suburb outside of the city and it is Annie Annie Andrews that's such a cute name uh, she is 15 years old. We have Jessica Andrews, who is 8 years old. And then we have the father, Brian Andrews, who I don't know his exact age. I couldn't find it anywhere. We meet the Andrews family. Uh, they are going through a little, well, a lot of a rough patch. Um, Brian has just lost his wife, Mrs. Andrews, to her battle with cancer a few months before this story picks up. Um, the girls have lost their mother, so obviously it's taken a real emotional toll on the family as well as a financial toll because the house has now gone from a two-income household to a one-income household. So that means Brian, who is a bus driver, has to take on extra shifts. And he's just trying to do his best to provide for his girls to give them, you know, a... a a good life as any parent wants to do and he's also having to deal with the emotional stress of losing I mean I'm gonna go out on a limb here and say the love of his life even though that was not listed anywhere I'm gonna assume that she was um and he's just trying to do his best so because he has to pick up all of these extra shifts Annie and Jessica are left at home alone a lot um Annie is old enough to babysit her eight-year-old sister and you know she's the one in charge of getting her ready for bed and feeding her but that's okay and because even though the two of them have a seven-year age gap uh they hung out all the time it said that they watched tv all the time together they would play games together um annie wasn't that teenage sister that was like i don't want to hang out with my little sister she's weird and and, and eight, weird and eight you know uh you know that 80s tro uh, sitcom trope. But uh, the two girls got along super well. Um, 
and I'm sure it really, really helped to have um, another person who was going through the same struggles that they were going through at the time. So I'm sure that they were able to bond a lot. I'm sure they were able to share fond memories together and the presence of each of them just made each other feel a little better while everybody was going through this rough time. We are in the 80s, which means that uh, house phones are a thing. <laughs> I have a house phone at my grandparents' house. We still have a landline. But uh, I'm talking like the phone on the wall. So, which I also had one of those growing up because, again, I was raised by my grandparents. So, uh, we were very late to get a lot of things. We were late to get cable. We were late to get cell phones. We were late to get a lot of things. But it's okay. We're there now and it's fine. But uh, Annie would, you know, spend a lot of time on the phone. She was a very popular girl. She had friends. And one evening... The phone rings, she picks it up, and she hears a voice that she doesn't recognize. And this voice on the phone introduces himself as Danny. And of course she's wondering, okay, she's scrolling through the mental Rolodex in her head of all of the people that she knows from school. She's like, I don't really know a Danny. And Danny begins to tell her that he lives in the neighborhood and he goes to the same school as Annie does. So uh, this is high school when you're 15. You're in high school. High schools are big. So, you know, you're not going to know everybody. Uh, and he got her number from a friend at school. And he said that he thought that she was very pretty and was interested in talking to her. And Annie is 15. So, of course, she obliges. And the two... Over the next several days, spend hours on the phone with each other discussing everything. And at the end of the week, Danny finally gets up the courage and asks her out on a date, to which Annie also agrees to. The plan is, is that Danny's going to come over to Annie's house, pick her up, and then the two of them are going to go into town to a local county fair and they're going to get some ice cream. Just a chill cash hangout you know what I'm saying actually a fair date sounds really cute <laughs> that would be really adorable actually so the day arrives I'm sure if I had to guess Annie picked out her flyest outfit which this is the 80s so it probably involves some very bright colors <laughs> um and I'm sure her hair was done to the nines I'm sure her little sister hyped her up the best that she could and the doorbell rings Annie runs to the front door she opens it and the guy at the door introduces himself as Danny. And that was who she was talking to. So the name matched. However, comma, he looked nothing like how he described himself on the phone. You see, over these several few days of conversation that Annie and Danny had, uh, he had described himself as being blonde and super tall and athletic and everything that he said about himself was basically playing up the part that he was this super handsome also 15 year old boy who somehow she had never seen uh and so that was what she was expecting when she opened the door I think most of us would expect who has described themselves that's the thing with dating apps and things like that too is that's why I don't do them because literally anybody could say or 
post a photo of what they you think that they look like and then when you meet them in person they look absolutely nothing that's called catfishing and there is a whole television show about it but uh this so the danny in her head that she's expecting to see was tall and blonde and athletic and then the danny that she saw when she opened the door had brown hair um was 58 he was not really athletically built in any way and he had from what she described as very disheveled clothing but the name matched and so did the voice and Annie was in kind of an awkward position now um she didn't want to be mean and she didn't want to seem rude so she ended up still going on the date with him but she was very creeped out from the beginning because as would any of us would be because why are you gonna lie about that like okay maybe if you lied about your height and you were like okay i'm five i'm six foot but you're really like five ten okay whatever that's still weird that you're lying about that but whatever that's a little lie but he lied about very integral parts about himself like his hair color it's you can't you can't do that. Uh, I it always amazes me when people tell such blatant lies and think that they're never going to get found out. Like did he think that did he really like I get where he was coming from because of course he was like she's not she's probably I'm more likely to get a date from her if I tell her that I'm this guy the prince from Shrek and not, you know, Shrek himself. But I mean, if she, she, they clearly had things in common that they wanted to talk about because they stayed on the phone for hours and he would call her every day for like a week straight. So I'm sure if he had just told her, I'm a dude that goes to school with you and I have brown hair and just left it at that, or maybe just don't even describe yourself, sir. Just be like, Hey, I'm a dude and I'm friends with your friend and I think you're cool. Let's hang out don't set up these unrealistic expectations for them and then you get there and your hair color is different like that's a big thing to lie about it, like that's like if I walked up to somebody who was like I have blonde hair blue eyes and pale skin and then I meet the person and they're like you are a black person with not at all that <laughs> um it just doesn't make any sense but I get he was probably just trying to to increase his chances on a date but like I said she was put in an awkward position but being polite as she was um she still agreed to go so the two of them headed into town on their date but she was still pretty skeptical from the get-go the two of them continued their evening uh just walking through the fair checking things out uh they were asking each other questions about like you know their family and you know where they grew up and things like that and eventually the conversation swayed to Annie talking about how she had just lost her mother to a battle with cancer. And it was at this moment that the date took a very sharp right turn into no return, to be quite honest. Because Danny got very excited about the discussion of her mother, particularly about the death part. Uh... At this point, he was experiencing a kind of joy and uh, animation in his face that he had not displayed throughout the entire evening. He had been pretty straight-faced, you know, 15-year-old teenage boy, 
pretty chill um, emotionally. Uh, but now he was very happy and he began asking her all of these questions about her mom to the point where it wasn't just like questions about her mother as a person. It was specifically about the dying part. So he was asking her questions that ranged from, you know, how did she die to how badly did she suffer when she died? And it was at this point that Annie decided, I'm done with this date. I'm very uncomfortable. He's asking me very inappropriate questions. It was only a few months ago I lost my mother. This is still a fresh thing for me. And she ended the date. She requested to be brought home, which they did after only an hour of being at the fair. uh Annie and Jessica were just talking about their mother and how much they had missed her and they were talking about all of the good times that they had had together and the two girls got the idea that they wanted to try something that they had seen presumably on television of what we have discussed in episodes of this podcast prior as a seance ooh so for anybody who doesn't know what a seance is, is basically you typically a seance is done in like a group format and you all sit around a table and you light candles and you sing songs and you try to communicate with spirits and things like that by talking to them. Uh, and that's what the girls did. They had candles. They held hands. Uh, it was just a, a, a mini seance just with two people. And they did this down in the basement of their house. And... To be quite honest, it was just kind of two kids having fun. They didn't really take it too seriously. Uh, You know, kids, we've been doing morbid little games for the beginning of time. Bloody Mary, I've done that a couple times in the mirror. Uh, I've done it with my sister, who is four years older than me. So it's a great age gap activity because, you know, everybody's scared. (laughs) Fear is equal. It doesn't matter if you're 16 or six, everybody gets scared. So, uh, the two girls were kind of just doing it to pass the time while their dad was at work. And when their dad walked in the door, they heard him walking upstairs. They quickly ended the seance and they went back upstairs because they didn't want their dad to catch them doing ghost stuff (laughs) that night Annie and Jessica went to bed and the two girls began to hear a strange noise and that strange noise was tapping coming from inside the walls of the house it was rhythmic and it would happen ever so often and in a pattern when the first tapping incident occurred the two girls thought that they had successfully conjured their mother's spirit and they were kind of excited. They were like, oh, it worked. Our, our, like, you know, they're 15 and 8. <laughs> they're like, yes, we did it. And with no formal training, we did it. <laughs> um, and, but the tapping started to occur every night after that point. And it would only occur when the girls were at home while their father was at work or when their dad was asleep. So the 
two girls were the only people in this house who ever heard the knocking and the tapping from the walls. And at the beginning of it, like I said, they were kind of excited about it. They were like, we can talk to ghosts now. But the tapping and the knocking got louder and it happened more frequently as time went on. And it became an issue really quickly because the girls began to not sleep very well. And when you're school-aged, sleep is essential to your daily, uh, I would say, diet. <laughs> you, As a kid, especially when you're growing and your brain is um, developing, you need all the sleep you can get. But eventually, the tapping and the knocking would evolve to bigger and more grander ghost activity because now... Things like furniture were being moved and things that the girls would place on counters or on bedside tables were now being moved to different locations, but not by them or their father because it would happen when the dad wasn't there. One specific incident uh, that I was able to find was that one of the girls would put a plate of food on the kitchen counter and they would go to a different room for a couple of minutes to get something else or to do laundry or whatever and then they would come back to get the plate of food and the food was gone. It was nowhere and of course they would ask the other sibling hey did you eat my food and they would say no and that's terrifying. (laughs) And eventually when it got to items disappearing, that was when the girls thought it was about time to tell their dad about it. So they confronted the father, Brian, and said, hey, I think there's a ghost in our house because things are moving and we hear noises at night. And the dad said, no, there's not. I don't know. And um, he just assumed that maybe this was uh, residual trauma from them losing their mother Uh, He also assumed that, you know, grief takes a lot out of you. So uh, they were probably very physically and emotionally drained. And he tried his best to reassure them. But he himself was also very overworked because now he's having to work essentially a two-man job as one person. So he obviously doesn't want to have to deal with possible ghosts in the house. So he's doing his best to tell the girls that, It's not that, you know, you're probably just seeing things. You guys have great imaginations, but it's not a ghost. Point blank, period. One evening, the two girls were upstairs, uh, presumably in the living room, and they started to hear the knocking and the tapping, which had become a uh, regular occurrence. Uh, But this time... The knocking and the tapping was not coming from inside the walls. It was coming from below them in the basement. And so the two of them, being scared and home alone, decided that they were going to face whatever this was, but they were going to do it together. So Annie got, she's smart, she got the biggest knife that they had in their kitchen. Good girl. Good job. That is what you do. You do not go into a place where strange noises are unarmed. Uh, So, and she took her sister with her. Again, smart. You need backup. Even if the backup is eight years old, you still need it. You take what you can get. And the two of them headed down to the basement to see if they could figure out what this noise was. And thinking that they were going to be greeted by a ghost or possibly a raccoon... They were greeted by much worse. Written on the wall in the basement 
in what looked to be blood was, quote, I'm in your room. Come and find me. End quote. The two girls immediately ran back upstairs and instead of doing what the creepy note told them to do, which is come to their room, uh, the two girls were, again, very smart, and they ran across the street to a neighbor's house to call their dad to come home, which he did, uh, begrudgingly, of course, because, you know, he needs to work. He went down to the basement to investigate, and just from a quick glance, he realized that the blood on the wall was ketchup, And from this point on, he started to think that Annie and Jessica were doing it to get him to come home and be with them more often. Because, you know, it was probably tough for them to not have their dad around as much, uh, especially going through what they were going through. And so I could see how Brian would think that. From this instance of the ketchup on the wall, Brian decided that it would be best to have the girls go to therapy to be able to talk out their struggles and you know I'm like okay Brian like that's very progressive of you in the 80s Brian like obviously we had mental health care in the 80s and the 90s and so on but you know I don't think until maybe like recently of like 2010 and up I would even argue to say 2015 and up has it become common to to verbally talk about mental health and people not look at you like you have five heads or that you're crazy. Um, so that, that was a good, I, yes, Brian, that's A plus parenting. We stand. We are now in January of 1987 for the next couple of weeks, the knocking and all of the weird ghost shit stops. Uh, and things seem to be going back to normal a little bit or as normal as they could be the girls are going to therapy now and uh they're able to kind of talk about what they're feeling and they're hoping to maybe move past that catch-up incident however just as quickly as it ended the knocking started again so this time the knocking was coming from annie's room I don't know if I mentioned the two girls have separate rooms. They don't sleep in the same room. Uh, I don't think I said that. But yeah, so anytime the knocking and all this crap would start, uh, Jessica, the younger one, would run to Annie's room and they would um, they would sleep in that room together. But um, yeah, so this time they heard knocking in Annie's room and it was coming from the walls. Uh But they were downstairs when this happened. So Annie, again, she strapped up with a kitchen knife. Uh, The two girls, again, with her back up, with her partner in crime, Jessica. They walk upstairs into Annie's room. And the second they hit the doorway of her room and open the door, they see another message on the wall. Quote, I'm back. Find me if you can. End quote. Like deja vu, the two girls sprinted down the stairs and ran across the street to the same neighbor's house and called their dad to come home. They got their dad on the phone. They were uh, quite frantic and telling them that there was another message and that all this stuff started happening again. And again, Brian was irritated, but, you know, he said, fine, I'll come home and I'll check it out. Because even though he was sort of 
in this headspace of they're doing this for my attention, he still was sympathetic towards them because he understood that they were going through a lot. So he left work and he headed home. So when Brian entered the house to do a thorough investigation, he not only discovered the note on the wall in Annie's room, but the TV in the living room was at full volume, like the highest that you could possibly put a TV, which I, what is that one, the, the, the movie company that would blast your eardrums out? Is it THX or that like thing? I'll put the sound in. I'll crank it down though on here. But that whenever you would put in like a VHS tape or a, a DVD and it was so un, it was it's so loud. And for who? For what? Like, I get it. They're trying to test the sound quality of your system. But some of us are trying to watch a movie when their parents are asleep. And your happy place is at 10 p.m. when everybody in the house is asleep. And you want to sneak downstairs and watch a movie. And you forget to turn the volume down. And that thing gives away your your happy time at 10 p.m. Okay? Um... I'm just trying to watch the Lizzie McGuire movie. I don't understand why you needed to absolutely obliterate. Like the next time I go take the hearing test when that bus comes to my school, I ain't going to be able to hear nothing. Um, But I digress. So (laughs) dad sees the message on the wall when he first walks into the house. TV's at full volume. But an added bonus, there is another message on the wall. And this one is a message that the girls didn't mention because the girls hadn't seen it. This message had turned up while the girls were at the neighbor's house. And it says, in quotes, marry me, end quote. So it was at this point after reading the marry me message on the wall, Brian started to believe what the girls had been saying about things moving and things knocking and just everything in the house being off and I think he had probably noticed little things here and there too but he just was like I'm tired and worn out and I'm sad and so he just tried to be like I can't put anything else on my plate so I totally get where he's coming from but after this he starts to finally think there's something going on in this house And right when he thinks that, out of the corner of his eye, he sees something in the room move. And he flips his head around and he sees a boy standing in the hallway. This boy has tons of makeup on his face. He's wearing a blonde wig and his wife's wedding dress. So Brian's, the the mother who had passed on, the wedding dress that Brian had kept in their their closet. And in this mysterious bride's hand was a hatchet. There were a couple different reports as to what exactly happened next. Uh, One of the report, and the one that I'm thinking, I'm choosing to believe the most that happened, was that Brian uh, began to have a physical struggle with the intruder of course because he's in the house um and at some point during this brian gets knocked down or he gets knocked out and when he wakes up the boy is gone um and then another version of this that i read was that um the the girls were in the house with brian when this happened and that 
all of them were able to like barricade themselves in a room and then jump out a window and go call the police at the neighbors. But either way, the family was able to make it out of the house and go call the police at the same neighbor. This neighbor's phone bill must be so high. <laughs> um, and so, but either way it happened, it all ends in the same way, which is that the family makes it to the neighbor's house across the street to call the police and the boy disappears. When the police arrived, they did a full sweep of the house, as you do, to collect any sort of evidence and to check out all the messages that were left on the wall. And during the search, uh, one of the officers pushed uh, a dresser that was um, in Annie's room uh, to the side, and they found a small door that had been in the wall. Imagine, you know how Alice in Wonderland, after she falls down the the Oh my god, no. Scratch that. Sorry. There are tiny doors in Alice in Wonderland, but this is a better uh, comparison. If you've ever seen the movie Coraline, how she goes through that door in her room and goes to the other world. Okay, yeah, it's that. So they push aside her dresser. They find a small door. They open the door and inside the door is a crawl space that the family w didn't really know about, or if they did, it was just the parents that knew about it. They push the dresser aside. There's a small Coraline-esque door. They open said Coraline door, and instead of finding a pathway to the other world, they find a crawl space where a very thin, disheveled, dark-haired boy is hiding. And this boy's name is Daniel LaPlante. You remember Danny from the beginning? This is him. Surprise, surprise. So you know all the knocks and the things moving around the house and everything disappearing and all the creepy notes being left on the wall? Danny is the mastermind behind all of that. Danny had been living in the walls of the Andrews house from anywhere from a couple days to as long as two months. Yup. First time I heard this story, about crap my pants when I heard that. This is not at all where I thought that story was going to go. Inside his weird little crawlspace house, they found a sleeping bag, beer cans, food wrappers, and several articles of clothing, a lot of which belonged to the Andrews family. The way that this crawlspace was set up, there were passageways in between other crawl spaces that were in the house that you could access and the way that you went through these passageways was through the walls of the house which explains how he was able to knock on the walls at night and make them think it was a ghost I don't fully understand the science behind that um <laughs> because um you know, I mean, they have a basement in this house, which, first of all, I've never had a basement. I've never even been inside of a basement. Uh, I've lived in Florida my whole life, 
and we don't have basements here. Uh, I mean, they exist, but most houses when they're being built don't or buildings even in Florida do not come with basements. That's like an extra thing that you have to add on. Um, and that's also a good way to see if somebody's creepy because like for what reason would you need a basement in Florida? Because um, if you're not familiar with the weather in Florida, it we have hurricane season, which we are currently in. Um, it goes from like May, I think, till about November. It's like a good chunk of the year where we have to worry about tropical storms and hurricanes. So we get a lot of rain. It rains almost every day here during the summer. Uh, it just rained before I cut the mic on. Uh, we get thunderstorms almost every day and you just have to learn to live with it. Uh, so if you can imagine having a basement would be absolutely not helpful because it floods very easily here. Uh, particularly where I live, uh, there's some times where if it rains too much, there's certain streets that I know not to drive down, uh, because you just, you're going to bottom out your car. Uh, you're going to flood out the engine and that's not a good time for me or my bank account. So basements are already a foreign thing to me I don't think I've ever seen a crawl space I've been in an attic I've had an I have an attic in I've had an attic in almost every house that I've lived in um I've mentioned this in a blog I have lived between because my grandparents moved from I was born and they lived in a townhome and then we moved into an apartment and then the house that we currently live in now. So my grandparents moved three times with me growing up. And then my parents moved a crap ton. So all together with my grandparents and my parents, I have lived in 11 different houses. Um, we are not a military family. We, you know, you have financial troubles and you end up moving. So my parents just had to kind of, and there were a lot of us, um, my sisters and I so my two sisters uh Samantha and Tiffany shout out to them one time their mother who let's face it was also my mother because I was with them all the time uh she sadly passed away in 2008 um from cancer so I can relate to Jessica and um and oh my god what's her name Annie sorry Jessica and Annie uh and then my sisters moved in with my parents full time and my mom became their mom. So when you go from having like one kid in the house to having three and uh, my sisters are four and six years older than me. So they were at different stages of their life than I was, um, which is why I ended up having to move in with my grandparents most of the time. Yada, yada, yada. Basically, what I'm saying is, uh, uh, to, you know, you move a lot if you can't afford to be where you're at. And so, um, none of, uh, most of the places that I lived, none of the places I lived in had a basement. All of them, except for like two, I think, had a, had an attic. Um, so... I full all of this rambling to say I don't get how this house had a full on like sh the shining maze in the freaking walls of the house and nobody knew about it like I feel like because at one point when they moved into the house unless they moved into the house and there was already furniture but from what I'm aware when you buy a house the furniture doesn't come with it um there had to have been a point where Annie's room was empty and the parents had to have moved the dresser in there 
So didn't they see the tiny little door? I don't know, but whatever. Um, if somebody could ex please explain crawl spaces to me, that would be great. And then the other absolutely terrifying uh, attribute is that, you know, the house was a little bit older, so there were holes in the wall, which means that Danny, Daniel, could watch the family from whatever room that they were in. Um, and considering that he was, you know, interested in one of them, I'm sure he was being a weird peeping Tom. And for that, I would like to square up with him in a KFC parking lot. Daniel immediately was arrested upon being found in his little uh, Harry Potter room. And he, since he was 16 at the time, uh, he was sent to a juvenile detention center. And he spent 10 months there. So he was there from January to October of 1987. And he, between that time, he would turn 17. So when he goes to court, he is now 17 years old because um, he was born on May 16th. Now let's learn a little bit about Daniel, if we must. Ugh. Um, but we have to, so we understand what his origins are. Uh, yeah, I never share the backstories of criminals because I'm, like, interested in them and, quite honestly, could care less about them. I do it to under so you guys and also myself can understand the psychology of, like, how these people got to doing what they did and I think people's backstories help a lot with that um not in every single case um but majority of people who are um uh just hard and fast criminals have a pretty rough upbringing as did Daniel so as I said earlier he was born on May 16th in 1970 um and his childhood would be described by most people as very traumatic he originally was born and he grew up in Townsend, Massachusetts, uh, which is a separate town. And he lived with his mom and his stepfather. And uh, from all accounts, his stepfather was horrible to him. He was uh, psychologically as well as sexually abusive to him. And as well as some other authority figures in his life I couldn't find specifics but it is said that multiple adults did uh, different forms of assault to him um, and he was never super great at school uh, very early on he got uh, diagnosed with dyslexia and you would think having a diagnosis means that people are going to help you but I guess not uh, he still struggled uh, he was very heavily bullied by a lot of his classmates um, the only things I could find from people who went to school with him uh, that said things about him was that he was creepy and weird um, so that's not great Eventually, his school would refer him to go see a psychiatrist because he experienced very uh, erratic behavior. And uh, he also had a lack of hygiene. I don't know why that's something you need to be sent for to a psychiatrist for. But apparently, they lumped that in with his behavioral problems. He Once he started seeing the psychiatrist, he was uh, immediately diagnosed with hyperactivity disorder, which at the time is what that was called. Now we call that ADHD or attention deficit disorder. Uh, 
and that's what I thought the definition was going to be. But when I was researching, I had to look it up because I was like, I am not a doctor, so I'm going <laughs> to just double check. But I'm pretty sure hyperactivity disorder is just another word for ADHD. And I was right. Maybe I could be a doctor. No, I couldn't. I couldn't pass the classes. <laughs> While this could have been easily treated and, you know, helped him go on to live a little bit more of a stable life, the psychiatrist that he had been seeing had started to sexually abuse him during their sessions. So eventually, Daniel just stopped going um, and he spent lots of hours out on the streets by himself because he had very few friends. And eventually, he started looking into houses and uh, doing kind of small petty thefts in people's homes, like stealing necklaces or you know, stuff that was left out on the tables. Uh, and that eventually would grow into more uh, grandiose thefts where he would just full on smash windows and create utter chaos and just leave wherever he kind of went through in shambles. Back to him in court. Uh, if we remember, it is October of 1987 and he is now transferred to adult court um because he has a he's committed a a slew of different crimes so it's not just one thing so they're like he's done a lot so maybe let's try him as an adult he's 17 years old and when you are tried as an adult you get to post bail which i knew that part but i was not aware that juveniles could not post bail that is very interesting to me um but his mother ended up his mother ended up springing him out of the juvenile detention center that he was at. Uh, she posted bail for him, and he left. Eventually, the courts came to the consensus of what they were going to charge him with. So he was going to be charged with four counts of kidnapping, four counts of armed assault in a dwelling, breaking and entering a dwelling, larceny of more than $100, and malicious destruction of a property. That is a lot of stuff. Um, and he was set to be sentenced in court, and his next court appearance was December 11th of 1987, uh, which was to be held at the Middlesex Superior Court. Uh, but he never showed up. You see, after he got sprung out of jail, uh, he kind of went back to doing his uh, breaking and entering things. But this time... He broke into a neighbor's home in an evening of November and stole two handguns, which he would then go on to use on December 1st, 1987. We are now at the residence of the Gustafson family, which was 33-year-old Priscilla, um, her husband Andrew, who was 34, and they had two kids, Abigail, who was seven, and William, who was five. Uh, at the time... Of me telling you this story, Priscilla was pregnant and she was a nursery school teacher. From all accounts, she was really sweet and nurturing and all of her friends have nothing but terrific things to say about her. Uh, she was a choir singer in her local church and her whole family was of Christian faith. On the evening of December 1st, 1987, in the home is Priscilla and William. Abigail, uh, because this is the 80s, you can let a seven-year-old walk home alone from the bus stop. 
So that was what she was doing. It wasn't a long walk. It was super short. I'm pretty sure it was just down the street. And then the husband, Andrew, is at work, which he is a lawyer. So Daniel LaPlante uh, walked a mile and a half from his home to the Gustafsons' home. He broke in with his two handguns. And the the actual like train of events is very wishy-washy. But... At some point, Daniel forced Priscilla into a bedroom where he assaulted her in various ways. Um, He then ended her life by putting a pillow over her head and he shot through it twice. He would then end the lives of both of her children, William, uh, who was downstairs, uh, and Abigail, he waited for her to get home from school, and he drowned both of them in the bathtub, which was located in the bathroom downstairs. So eventually, around 5 o'clock, Andrew, the husband, would arrive back home from work, and he already knew something was off because the house was quiet, and when you have two children, or even one child, your house isn't quiet. But he went upstairs and found his wife dead in the bedroom, And he was too afraid to search the rest of the house. So he went to a neighbor's house and called the police. So the police eventually show up. They do a search of the home. And the evidence that they are able to find is a twenty-two caliber bullet casing, which is in the master bedroom where Priscilla was found. Um, There was a can of beer that had been left on the counter. um, And there were footprints that were in the flower bed outside, which would all be very useful for finding the perpetrator. This was like, when I told you at the beginning, the, the te- well, at least the town that the Andrews were in, all of these towns are rather small. They're like 10,000 or less people. Now they're 10,000 or less people. I'm assuming in the 80s, there were probably like what? Like 4,000, 5,000 people there maybe? Like it, these are small, very close-knit community towns where stuff like this doesn't happen all the time. So when this did happen, the entire town's terrified because, one, they've just lost a family who, you know, I'm assuming this family knew everybody because if you're a part of a church, you probably are friends with most people in the area. So they've lost uh, most of a family that they cared about. And second of all, the guy who did this or girl is not caught. The it, They're just roaming around town. So it, it probably in everybody's heads is like, oh, we're next probably. Detectives eventually start coming up with possible uh, suspects that they can think of. You know, of course, they're interviewing the husband to try and figure out what, um, w- like, what he thought maybe if they had any enemies. Uh, of course, you know, if it's a family like this, they have no grudges with anybody. So that makes things a little bit harder. Because if you can, fi- like, if you ask somebody, like, was there somebody that hated them? And you're like, oh, yeah, this girl that went to school with her. Like, it makes things easier. But this fam- everybody loved them. There was no reason for this to happen. But a name that the detectives did put on the list because they started to put down local criminals was Daniel LaPlante. He, like I said, he lived less than a mile. He only made a half a mile walk to their house. So he was in the area. He, the things that were stolen from the home was a uh, television set and a cordless phone. And Daniel was known for breaking and robbing people's uh, valuables in the area. So the, the police were like, this is adding up. 
Eventually, on December 2nd, the police find uh, Daniel sitting in a library and they start to ask him if he had any involvement with the murders. Of course, he denies it and says that he was at his six-year-old niece's birthday party around the time that they had told him that the murders had occurred and that he had nothing to do with it. They let him go because they didn't really have any like hard proof evidence on him yet because things were still being tested. Um, this was, after all, less than 24 hours after this had happened. So they waited a little bit, and then later on in the day, they go to find Daniel again, but this time they show up at his house, and Daniel's sitting on the porch. And the second he sees the police pull up, he darts and runs into the woods. Now, here is something I've learned from true crime, is that if you are telling people you are not involved... Don't do things that make it look like you are involved, i.e. run from authority figures, run from the law, try to hide evidence, make up grandiose lies. Don't like why are you running if you telling people you ain't guilty? That's what always kills me on these freaking uh, like just anything like these police like. Like, okay, I don't like the show Cops. I have watched it when I was delirious at night. And I used to watch it a lot when I was a kid before I knew uh, how absolutely corrupt the police system is. Um, but they would always be, like, standing around talking to them. And they're like, yeah, I had nothing to do with it. I had nothing to do with it. And they're like, okay, hold on one second. I'm going to go to my car and, like, put in some info. And the second they turn around, they freaking dart. And they're like, why'd you run? And he's like, I can't go back to jail. It's like... Sir, you just said that you didn't do it. You gotta, like, if you're gonna lie, lie with some conviction. Like, don't, just don't run. Uh, moral of the story is, do not run. <laughs> While the other uh, police officers were chasing him down in the woods, another half of them went into Daniel's house and into his room to see if they could find anything that was incriminating. Uh, and they did. They found a wet pair of gloves, uh, which would have been used to drown the children because it's just awful. It's like, it's not, they did, that family didn't even do nothing. It's in like the parent, it's not like the parents were like in the mob and like the kids just like got caught up in it, whatever, which is still terrible when I read stuff about that. Like, literally this family was just wrong place wrong time like if they had been out at like Chuck E. Cheese that night this wouldn't have happened like I I hate how just like spur of the moment some true crime stuff can be where it's like you didn't like I get it when it's like I don't get it I will never understand why people choose murder but I mean I I like if somebody knows someone then okay you have some sort of connection but when somebody just like murders a random human that they don't even know anything about. You can't even tell me what my first name is and you took my life from this planet. That doesn't make any sense to me. Like, I, and again, he's a clearly mentally ill, but, and like, I feel bad that he grew up like this, but that still doesn't excuse him from taking three people's lives and also tormenting a whole nother family. Like, I keep, when I'm talking about this, the other thing, even though it's crazy, it seems less crazy than this murder but like he also traumatized a grieving family and made them think that there was a fucking ghost in the house like he really has no he has no morals absolutely none 
They were also able to uh, find some material on a shirt from him that had uh, the same kind of uh, wood from the house in the yard. So they were able to find some pretty solid evidence that he had at least been on the property. Uh, And at this point, a police-issued manhunt was uh, put out to catch him. And they used helicopters. They had dogs out. There were over 50 officers running around trying to find him in the woods. Daniel didn't... You would think, like, oh, I'll make myself, like, undetected. I'll, like, hide in a cave or something. No, he immediately goes and kidnaps a woman at gunpoint in her car and makes her drive her Volkswagen into town for him. So, he's committing other crime. Like, you already committed a crime by running from the police. Like, that's another added charge, resisting arrest. But... You're also at, he's just racking in the the charges, bro. And he already had like a million charges on him to begin with because this is December 2nd. His freaking uh, court date was December 11th. And so when he shows back up, he's going to have so much, you guys, so much. Somehow she was able to get away from him, uh, the driver of said van, and she was able to call the police and tell them that this had happened. Uh... And she knew him because, again, this town is pretty small. So now the police know to look out for a Volkswagen van because he has the car now. He is GTAing in real life and something tells me, and I, I know what's going to happen because I researched it, but uh, it should be telling you uh, people who do GTA don't drive well. <laughs> and mind you, this has only been a couple hours since the questioning from him had begun. He has already managed to be spotted by multiple people in the town who have all called the police and said, hey, we see him. Again, this is a problem with committing crimes in small towns is that, because okay, my dad grew up in a small-ish town uh, and so whenever, and like all the kids played together. So if a neighbor saw you doing something you weren't supposed to, like you were playing in somebody's yard that you weren't supposed to or you were picking flowers or you were like, I don't know, just doing something rambunctious you weren't supposed to. It was like a known rule in the town that, like, the neighbor or whoever saw you could, like, take you home and tell your parents, like, this is what they were doing. Or they would call your mom and be like, hey, your son's in my yard causing a ruckus. And then she'd be like, all right, I'll be down there. Like, everyone, there's nothing going on in a small town. So even when the smallest tiniest bit of like even it might not be illegal it might just be annoying you're gonna report it you're gonna talk about it you're gonna be all up in people's business because there's nothing else going on so of course he's gonna get caught eventually on december 3rd they were able to find daniel laplanta and put him back into custody around 6 30 p.m he was uh hiding in a dumpster <laughs> In Ayer, Massachusetts, uh, which is about 11 miles away from where all of this happened. So he didn't get very far. Uh, I would give him probably like a D plus for the GTA rating. When the officers arrested him, they reported that he was uh, laughing hysterically throughout the entire experience. Uh, he was He did not resist arrest. He walked right up to them but he was maniacally laughing through the entire experience and they found a handgun in his underwear 
Charges of murder were immediately added to all of his other laundry list of uh, charges. Uh, so he was being charged with the murder of Priscilla, Abigail, and William Gustafson. And um, a bunch of other charges, too. Uh, and plus the ones that he committed when he was on the run. So, like, hij- like robbing a woman at gunpoint for her Volkswagen van. Plus all of the charges uh, from the Andrews uh house haunting creepy incident from the beginning which i learned from my father because i was con- i wasn't concerned but i was interested i was like what qualifies as fit to stand trial and um he basically told me that if you understand the law like how the law works as they're explaining it to you and you are able to like comprehend and give uh full and complete answers to like i am being charged with this amount of time for this crime and this is what happened then you are therefore fit to stand trial if you are able to mentally comprehend how the law works is what it is um because in my head I don't know what I thought but I didn't think it was that I just thought it was like if they found any kind of mental illness that you had then immediately it was like oh they're not fit to stand trial no you can have a mental illness but if that if that doesn't impact you being able to understand how the law works then you are fit to stand trial so thanks dad appreciate you for that for anybody who's new here my dad's a bailiff the judge immediately said that he was going to be tried as an adult for the murders, even though he was 17 when it happened. He didn't care. He was like, I'm tired of this kid because he was, you know, the town robber. And also now he was the town creeper because he hid in those people's walls. And now he is the town murderer. So he has evolved through all of the ranks. Um, I was about to make a horrible comparison. I'll say it. The episode of SpongeBob where Sandy has to go... F- uh uh or is it spongebob one of them has to go rescue the other one from this like karate tournament thing and there's like they have to go up the level so there's like a villain on every floor until they get to the top and then they free their person so that's what i thought in my head my head works in spongebob i have to make a joke or something because this case is real like the beginning of this case is just weird because there's no murder and it's like spooky and also really freaking creepy because somebody's literally living in your walls and then the second half of this case is very sad because three people lost their lives Again, since this is a small town, everybody knows each other. They were able to call 50 witnesses to take the stand, some of which were even related to Daniel, and uh, basically say, like, he he's, yeah, he probably did this. And he, I also watched him, like, run into the forest, or I watched him in a minivan, or I watched him uh, go on the date with that girl. So, yeah. Daniel during the trial just kind of sat there with a smirk on his face. He didn't say anything. He didn't um, show any kind of emotion or cry or anything. He was just kind of in this weird state of, yeah, I did it and whatever about it. Um, Everyone in the room, even his own lawyer, said that they got really bad energy from him and they didn't really like him. 
uh, and he just he was scary to be around. The only argument that his lawyers were able to bring up in such a short period of time was that um, the evidence that they found in the home was circumstantial in that it could have belonged to literally anybody in the family. Uh, that didn't really pan out because his whole family and even his siblings ended up having alibis for the day of the murder. So that's great. Moving on. They're screwed. The His lawyers also did bring up the point of how he was very heavily abused as a child um, by many people in his life, including that freaking terrible therapist that he was sent to. And uh, at this point, I don't think his lawyers were expecting him to get off. They were just trying to get him the, le- the least charge that they possibly could. The jury went and deliberated for about five hours and eventually came out and found Daniel guilty on all accounts. The judge ended up sending him to three life sentences, which would all be served consecutively, which means there is no chance of him getting out. He is currently being held at the Norfolk prison in Norfolk, Massachusetts. You think it ends there, but it doesn't. Um, I'm going to tell you about where he is now and what's happened after that. So in 1993, he ended up trying to appeal, Daniel, tried to appeal his conviction saying that the search that they did of his home, remember when they just kind of pulled up on his crib and were like, we're going to go in your house. Uh, There was no search warrant. So that was like unlawful. Of course, his appeal got denied, um, but he tried. 2000 rolled around Daniel ended up being segregated from other inmates after he requested being moved because he felt unsafe around the other people um he then went on to sue the board of prisons uh which (laughs) that's just such a normal like that's just such a across the board board name board of prisons like what do you what do you what board do you serve on the board of prisons it's like okay yeah I get what y'all do um, pretty straightforward to the point. Um, so he would go to sue them because he was mad that he was not allowed to use the library in the prison, which apparently if you're segregated, you are not allowed access to the library. Should have thought about that before you were trying to get segregated. He went on to receive $450 on the rights of his grounds being, er, on the grounds of his rights being denied. He received from somebody outside of prison. Somebody sent him porn. I don't know in what form. Uh, I'm assuming a magazine because I don't think they have DVD players in prison. Um, And if they do, it's probably in the common room. And I imagine that anybody can't just put porn on in the main room area. Um, Yeah. No. Group porn session. Uh, No, that's weird. (laughs) Um, But it got confiscated, obviously, because you can't have... It's contraband. You can't have porn in prison. Uh, And he kind of bitched about that. So that's not great. And then 2013 rolled around. He made another uh, complaint that he was not being allowed to practice his religion um, as to the highest of what he could anyway. Um, He denounced or he denounced whatever religion he was, which I'm assuming was Christianity. And he is now Wiccan. And he demanded that they give him ritual oils. Um, and these oils included things like dragon's blood, black opium, and honeysuckle. And uh, he apparently, when you're a Wiccan, you also require carrot cake. 
this case is so weird, man. Like, I'm set, when you're researching it, you're like, oh, this is weird. But you just kind of, like, add it to your notes because you're like, okay. But when you're saying it out loud, you realize how absolutely ridiculous some of this stuff is. And you're like, oh, my God, bro. As of 2017, Daniel is 46 years old. Um, he has gone to the Supreme Court to try to get a reduced sentence. Uh, because he was trying to say that you can't give a juvenile life in prison without parole, which is true, I think, for most states. So his three life sentences would have mean that he would have had to have served 45 years in total. Um, but if he had served them concurrently and not consecutively, that would mean that he would have been eligible for parole in 2017 instead of 2032, which is why he was trying to go to the supreme court and be like hey i was a juvenile of course the family of the Gustafsons showed up and were like hey no because duh um like why 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 would you do that um and you know if i was a family member of somebody who had been murdered i and that person was trying to get out i would be afraid for not only my own safety, but the public safety, because you personally are aware of what this person can do. Like, they ripped away half of your family. Of course you're going to want them to stay in prison. Daniel eventually, uh, at his resentencing hearing, made a formal apology to the Gustafson family and said, quote, I do not have the words to fully express my profound sorrow, but I am truly sorry for the harm that I've caused. From the very essence of who I am, from the depths of my soul, I am sorry end quote uh people who were there and heard this apology said that it was dog trash and that it wasn't good enough uh and that his tone of voice and his demeanor was absolutely uh insecure and insincere one of the supreme uh court judges at middlesex um court supreme court um said her name was helena kazanjian i believe i'm saying that correctly maybe probably not uh, she was like, no, I don't believe that he's been rehabilitated. He seems just as cold as the day that we met him. So, uh, she resentenced Daniel to his original sentence, which was three life sentences, uh, to be served, uh, consecutively. And he has the opportunity for parole, uh, after he serves 45 years. And in 2017, he had served 30 years. So he'll be out in 2032. So, uh, update on the husband from the, is it, oh no, his name is Andrew. Okay, because the family from the beginning, their last name was Andrews. The father of that family who was murdered, his first name is Andrew. So, Andrew Gustafson, he ended up remarrying a woman in 1989. Um, her name was Carol. And she had also lost her husband. And when the two of them got married, this is a cute little fact, when the two of them got married, they each wore two wedding rings. One was for their each other, and then the other one was to remember their uh, spouse who had passed on. Uh, the two of them went on to have two daughters named Holly and Laura, and Andrew quit being a lawyer, and he eventually went to work for the state of Massachusetts as a child advocate. He would do that for about 12 years, and then he would eventually go on to uh, the Massachusetts Conference of the United Church of Christ, where he would work there. I couldn't find anything about the 
Andrew's family, that first family, uh, where Daniel was being weird as hell. Um, I and also when I was doing research about them, uh, everything that I read said that the daughters' names were um, Annie and Jessica, and one blog that I read said that their names were Tina and Brenda and I had a full on freak out because I was like did I research this whole thing and I didn't even get their names right no that one blog just messed it up I don't know where he got Tina and Brenda from I was tripping um but I couldn't find anything about them I hope they went on to live a better uh safer feeling life because I can imagine it's scary especially when you're a kid when you find out somebody was living in your walls, especially if it was somebody that you went on a date with at 15, the creepy boy that you went to the fair with, like, that's, the idea just somebody, like, is in your house, but you don't know that they're in your house, but they know that they're in your house. Like, those videos that you see where, like, people put up security cameras in their living rooms and, like, people will be living in their attics and they'll come down at night to get food and then the people who actually live in the house will be like, yeah, we would wake up in the morning and, like, food would be gone or, like, the milk would be less. And I'm just like, how are you not more concerned? Like, people were just like, yeah, we just thought we were tripping. And it's like, no, trust your gut. I think what we can take from this story is trust your gut. Um... If you think something in your house is going on, contact the right people, whether it's a ghost hunter uh, or the police or um, your neighbor across the street. Do something like if you if you think it's off, it's off. And that is my final word on this Pepperell, Massachusetts, Daniel LaPlante case. do it for me with this episode i'm glad to be back i'm always so sad when i don't do this show because it truly brings me a lot of joy even though we're talking about very sad things um i love getting to make this show for you guys it's one of the highlights of my life i think i said it before and i will never stop saying it i love you guys to the moon and back thank you so much for taking time out of your life to listen to me talk about crime and history and uh have on really cool guests I have a guest who my next guest who will be on this show is somebody who I look up to a lot and I'm very excited for her to be on here and I'm gonna lose my mind when I because I've never actually like talked to her in real life um so I'm very excited I'm not gonna tell you it'll just be a secret (laughs) um but she the only secret or hint I will give you is she is from a a very popular podcast and I'm true crime podcast and I'm very excited to have her on um but yeah so that we got a lot of cool stuff in the works I'm working on hopefully doing some more ghost stuff um and having more cool guests I always love having guests on I think it's really fun to get different people's insights because I think y'all all know by now how I interpret things but it's nice to have different people's uh, viewpoints and especially if it's somebody who's not like super into true crime or if they're a professional and that's their job like when I had Judge Sabella on that was very cool to get like a legal perspective 
um, because I do my best to make sure all the legal stuff is in order. But, you know, it's nice to have somebody to fact check you. Uh, but, yeah, so uh, what do I need to say at the end? <laughs> um, oh, yeah, stickers, $4, crimetraveling.wordpress.com. It'll be in the description. There's two stickers available. You also get a handwritten note for me. I do a fun little thing on the Instagram. It's at Crime Traveling Podcast on Instagram where I ask a question of the week. It's super fun. Uh, I share your answers. I share memes with it. It's a good time. So come join us over there. Uh, you can also find the show on Facebook for just general updates. It's at Crime Traveling uh, on Facebook and then I am at It's Victoria Tribble on Instagram. I post a lot of memes to my story. I post um, when I do new writings and blog posts. I always post it there. And uh, I post outfits too. So if you're looking for some fashion stuff, I do that over on my, my page. And then I'm also on Instagram. I do very lukewarm comedy. It's at short and spooky gal. Uh, and that all this will be in the description, like always. Um, and then if you want to follow my writing, would love for you to subscribe to my blog. Uh, working on something right now I'm being very uh, anal about because I want it to be perfect. And I've been working on it for like two months now. Uh, so hopefully I have the guts to put it out because I haven't put out something on the blog in a minute. So that's crimetraveling.wordpress.com. Go to the top blog. And then if you scroll down, it'll let you put your email in. And you can get notified whenever I post a new blog post um because I am a writer I'm trying to tell myself that I'm not trying to be a writer I am a writer if you do it you are it um so yeah can I get Daniel LaPlante off my fucking screen please thank you ew but yeah anything else that I'm missing oh Patreon I have a Patreon uh it's just general support for the show there's two tiers there's a three dollar tier which is just general support and then there's a $10 tier, I believe. I thought it was $5. I think it's $10. Yep. $10 tier, which is the crime traveler. And you get a shout out on the show. And if you have a business or something you would like me to promote for you, or you're an artist or something, and you have like an Instagram page, I'd be happy to, I always love helping out fellow artists and things like that. Um, I'll do it right now. Uh, I was sent a wonderful tumblr as a gift it would the old if you're an og podcast listener i had a logo that i started out that was like a 70s logo with a flower in it when i first started um and i was sent a lovely tumblr by aaron over at high proof designs who uh is for all your laser engraving needs uh he's really cool his work's dope as hell he can laser engrave anything he makes dope ass cups dope ass earrings dope ass um just it's a dope ass shop you should <laughs> you should head over um and he does like personalized orders if you have like something specific uh you can find him on etsy i'll link him in the description of this but yeah i have like a cup with the show's old logo on it and it's so cool i've been using it like every day now and it's my favorite thing in the entire world uh but yeah, so if you would like a shout out on the show or you would like your business shouted out or whatever, become a $10 Patreon. And of course, that uh, the all of that Patreon support just goes to make the show bigger and better. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate all of you who are my Patreons now. And I appreciate anybody who listens to the show. You just even listening 
and like rating the show on Spotify and leaving a review on Apple uh, or in rating on Apple, like that stuff, it's like free, but it means the world to me. It really does. And I've had people message me and be like, yo, I just started your show and I'm loving it. And that crap makes me cry, literally. Like to think that I didn't think I could do this and now I'm at this point where I have like a bunch of episodes and it's like a whole thing and I have all you guys and oh my god it's too much it's too much I can't think about it or I'll start crying all right I'm gonna go (laughs) um so have a wonderful day evening or night whenever you're listening to this and I will see you next crime bye-bye